Levitt, you see the way their attention was just riveted on their teachers. That's Im impressive. So, Hey, it's good to see you guys this morning. Welcome. We are awfully glad you're here. And uh, we say it all the time, but we really actually mean it because uh, we believe that God wants to do something supernatural here. Amen? Something that he can only do when we're all together. And so we are looking forward expectantly to that. Great to have the kids in with us. Great to have the teens staying in with us. I know they... Just look forward to this Sunday every month. Amen, teens? Amen, teens. All right. Hey, if you uh, don't have a Bible this morning, you're going to need one, but we've got them for you. Uh, Val's got some, so if you need one, just raise your hands, and we'll get one put into your hand, and if you need to take that home, uh, please do. We want everybody to have the Word and to read it on your own. Uh, so take your Bibles, please, and turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look this morning at a huge chunk right in the middle of this epic chapter. We're going to look at verses 14 through 41, but we should be done by about 3 or 3.30, so don't, don't even panic. But it's a great text this morning. Um, you know, the fact is that people want to hear from God. You know, they want to know what he's like. They want to know how they can be connected with him. They want to know what it is that he wants from them. And we read the stories, right, of all these miraculous ways that he has reached down and that he's reached out to his people in the past. We see that he walked and he talked with Adam back there in the first garden. He told Noah to build an ark. We saw that he spoke to Moses from the midst of this burning bush. We see that he promised Abraham a son. We certainly see that he spoke very clearly to the Apostle Paul, right, on the road there to Damascus as he knocked the Apostle Paul off of his high donkey, so to speak. And yet the question is, does God still speak to us today? And if so, how does he do it? And when does he do it? And where does he do it? And so often when people ask this kind of a question, what they're really thinking for about or what they're really looking for is some sort of an audible voice. And God absolutely can do that, right? He's God. He can do about whatever he wants. And yet what we learn as we look to the scriptures is that God speaks primarily to us today through his Holy Spirit. And we're going to see as we continue on in this text that the Spirit still is very much speaking. And he does it, we're going to see in, in just a few of a number of different ways. So let's pray and just ask that the Lord would bless uh, this time. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your word and we thank you for your spirit as he speaks to us, Lord. We are so grateful that, he, that you are here with us this morning, Lord. We're, we're thankful for that teaching ministry of your spirit. We pray that it would be manifest here today, Lord. We pray that you'd give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church today, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if, as we've worked through these pretty incredible events here at that first Pentecost, we saw that the church was born there. We remember that group of 120 believers. They were waiting for the promise of the Father there in the upper room. And we watched as the Spirit came, right? The Spirit baptized. We saw the Spirit filled. And then last week we saw in verse 4 that the Spirit spoke. The gift of tongues we saw given as these believers were speaking in languages that were previously unknown to them. Fifteen different languages, right? And they were understood by this multitude of men, it said, that were there from three different continents. And we saw them all marveling at this. Some of them were sincere seekers. In verse 12 of chapter 2, it said that they asked what the meaning of this miracle might be. Others that were mocking said in verse 13, said they are full of new wine, right? They assumed that these believers were just drunk. And as we pick up today in verse 14, we read, it says in verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Peter says, look, it's only 9 a.m. 
Don't be silly. No one here is drunk, but there is something else altogether going on here. And if you will listen to me, I'll tell you what it is. Now, in the rest of our text, obviously, we're going to look at what Peter said. But before we do, I think we need to notice how he said it. Because in just these opening words, there is this absolute boldness. There is an authority in Peter's words. And remember that this is the same Peter who had cowered in the presence of a servant girl around the fire in the courtyard of the high priest. This is the same Peter who had denied and deserted Jesus as he went off to the cross. The same Peter who hid with the rest of the disciples after Jesus had died. And now it's this same Peter who stood here likely in the temple courts in front of a crowd of thousands of people, and he's calling for their attention, he's challenging them in their thinking, and he's about to confront them with the truth. Understand that Peter wasn't speaking the way that the rabbis typically did in that day when they would kind of gather up their group of this little group of disciples and they would sit down with them and they would instruct them. But here's Peter standing up And he is about to proclaim the truth like a herald. So what was the difference? Well, the difference was that Pentecost had changed Peter. With the coming of the Spirit, it had provided Peter with this power that was way beyond himself, just in the way that the Lord Jesus had promised that it would. And what we need to understand here is that just as the Spirit had been speaking collectively through the disciples as he was giving them utterance in these different tongues, the Spirit was still the one speaking here, but he was now speaking individually through the Apostle Peter because the Spirit speaks through people. So we've watched the way that the gift of tongues had just been given, and now we're going to watch as the gift of prophecy is exercised through Peter. So the gift of prophecy is a very important, it's a very unique gift. Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And he says this because this is a gift that is a special blessing to the church. And the Greek word for prophecy very simply means it's the ability to receive a divinely inspired message and then to deliver that to others. And in the Old Testament, we see the prophets delivering God's messages to God's people, often foretelling future events, right? And then their words became the scriptures as they they were speaking the words of God. It's sort of the thus saith the Lord kind of idea there. Now, in the New Testament, While we still occasionally see this very same ministry of foretelling something that will happen, what we begin to see more, and what we're going to see this morning with Peter, is the forthtelling of God's word. The forthtelling of God's word where God uses his servants to convey his heart. His heart for his people, from his word, to his people, on his behalf. So in a general sense, a preacher who's proclaiming the word of God is acting in a similar prophetic role. He's speaking for God. Sometimes it's in exhortation, sometimes it's in correction, sometimes comfort or inspiration, but it's most always in the application of God's written revelation, right? The application of God's word. And it's always, Paul says, to equip and to edify, to build up the body of Christ. Oftentimes it's insights into the scriptures that are given by the Lord which help to unlock some sort of a biblical truth. It's sort of like a personal touch from the Lord to an individual or a group of individuals as that gift is being manifest. Now, it's important to point out at this point that the gift of prophecy just like all the other gifts, except for perhaps the gift of tongues, the gifts are not the possession of the person to do with as they want. 
So rather, what we see is we see all these different gifts are in operation at certain times on certain occasions in that person's life and ministry. For example, the Holy Spirit can manifest the gifts of healing through a certain individual, but then it doesn't necessarily mean that that individual has the ability or the power to kind of conjure up that gift at any time that they want. And so it is with the gift of prophecy. The Holy Spirit will exercise the gift through a particular individual as he desires. And that's what we're going to see he will clearly do here through Peter at Pentecost. Because Peter's about to preach what would be the very first sermon preached in the church. And he's going to do it, we will see, under the clear inspiration of the Spirit. It was the Spirit speaking through Peter. And what we're going to see is a brilliantly crafted, a very scriptural explanation of what these people had just witnessed. And he begins it here by saying, again, these people aren't drunk, as you think, but he says in verse 16, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And the very first thing that we see is that Peter begins by basing his explanation. He brings their attention where? Right to the scriptures. And what I love is that here in the midst of this great outpouring of the Spirit, amongst the, the signs and the wonders and all of the speaking in tongues, Peter basically stands up and says, hey everybody, let's have a Bible study. If you need a Bible today, raise your hands and we'll be happy to get you, right? Peter says, let's look at what the prophet Joel wrote. And that's going to introduce three different Old Testament passages that Peter's going to quote. We're going to see him first talk about Joel and then two different Psalms. And what we see is that the, the bringing the focus onto God's word didn't quench at all what the Spirit was doing there and the way that he was moving, but it actually fulfilled what it is the Holy Spirit wanted to do. Because all of these signs and all of these wonders and this wonderful speaking in tongues were simply preparing for this work that God would do through his word. And what's sad today is that there are sometimes people who set the teaching of the word against the moving of the spirit. And they say, well, it would almost be more spiritual if we just didn't have a Bible study. Let's just allow the spirit to flow and to work. But the truth is, that the Spirit should be no less present. The Spirit should be no less active as the Word of God is being shared as when these miraculous manifestations of the Spirit seem to be occurring because it's the very same Spirit who's at work. Because we see next that the Spirit speaks in the Scriptures. So the true explanation of what they'd witnessed, Peter says, was that the Spirit of God had just been poured out as was promised by the prophet Joel. Then Peter quotes from that passage, starting in verse 17. Quoting from Joel, Peter says that it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and on signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So in using this quotation from Joel, Peter just explained what these onlookers had just seen, which is the Holy Spirit had been poured out on these people. And remember, before, the Holy Spirit was kind of given in drops, but here now he's poured out. He's available to all. And that would have been an incredible announcement to these devout Jews who were listening because remember, their reading of the Old Testament showed clearly that under that old covenant, only certain people were filled with the Spirit at certain times in order to accomplish specific things for the Lord. But here, 
What they just witnessed were 120 of their fellow Jews, men and women, who were enjoying the blessing and they were demonstrating the power of that very same spirit who had empowered Moses and David and all of the prophets. In the Old Testament, there was never a provision for, there was never the promise of any kind of an abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. But here, it was now the reality for this New Testament church. And notice Peter did not say the Pentecost was the final fulfillment of that prophecy of Joel. Because look in verses 19 and 20, all of those signs and wonders hadn't yet occurred. But what, when we read Joel's prophecy in the context, we see that it deals with the nation of Israel. It's in the end times, and it's in the connection with that specific period called the Day of the Lord. And yet here, Peter was led by the Spirit to see in this prophecy a nearer application to the church. And he said, hey, this is that same Holy Spirit that Joel wrote about. He's here. So there's a partial fulfillment now of a final ultimate fulfillment in the future. And this is something which we so often see in specific Bible prophecies. And then notice under the inspiration of the Spirit, notice the way that Peter links this prophetic event with an evangelistic purpose. Because the coming of the Spirit now meant that God was offering salvation in a way which he had was not previously offered. It says there that salvation was offered to who? Whoever, right? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Ultimately, we know that would be whether Jew or Gentile. So this was the dawning of a brand new age, the dawning of these last days in which God was going to bring to completion his plan for the salvation of mankind, And he would do it, Peter now continues, through the work of one man. So watch the way Peter pivots here. He's connecting this prophetic explanation of what they just witnessed now to this very spirit-filled, Christ-centered focus of the reasons behind it. Now, we may look at what Peter just said, and we may think, well, that would be enough, Peter. You've just given a great message, right? You've just, through Joel, you've just told us about this outpouring of the Spirit and these miraculous dreams and visions and prophecies. You've just talked about these signs and these wonders in the day of the Lord. You've just get talked about this invitation to call on the name of the Lord, and that is a great message in and of itself. But Peter knew as he was prompted by the Spirit, that that wasn't enough. Because he knew that he had yet to speak about the saving work of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. So everything up until this point had sort of been the introduction, explaining these strange things that they'd just seen. But now the Spirit, through the Apostle Peter, is going to bring forth the essential message. Because now he would announce this startling news that what they'd just witnessed the thing that they had just witnessed was very closely connected to a crime that they had just committed. Look in verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Peter so effectively here turns their attention right to Jesus. And look at the way he does it. In verse 22, he summed up the whole life of Jesus. In verse 23, he talked about the death of Jesus. In verse 24, he speaks about the resurrection of Jesus. So in less than 30 seconds, Peter just encompassed Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now that is some spirit-filled preaching. Amen? Remember, Jesus had said in John 15, he said that when the helper comes... 
whom I shall send to you from my Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, what will he do? He will testify of me. So this gift of prophecy, right, as the Spirit is speaking to God's people, will always lift up the name of Jesus. And at this point, if these, Jude has, if these Jews had any illusions that Jesus was still in a tomb there in Jerusalem, Peter had just blown their minds and he had confronted them with their own sin because he says Jesus of Nazareth has indeed been raised from the dead. Because the person of Jesus, all the prophecies about Jesus, all of those things demanded that he be raised. He says that death had no hold over him. These things had to happen. And of course, it's the resurrection that proves that he was who he said he was, that he was the Messiah. Proves that he was the one, proves also that the, the one who they had murdered was now in heaven and that they still had to reckon with him and reckon with what they had done to him. So Peter just took the gloves off here, didn't he? Then he says that even though all this had happened to, according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, so even though God knew about it, even though God had planned for it, these men still bore the guilt of their actions, crucifying him with what Peter says were lawless hands. This is a pretty bold declaration. This is a pretty serious accusation that Peter's making here. And remember, he's doing this speaking to a huge crowd, a crowd of thousands, which no doubt included all of those Jewish religious leaders. He's doing it in a place there in the temple courts, which was directly in the shadow of Rome. Because if you go to Jerusalem today, what you see is that immediately adjacent to the Temple Mount stands the Fortress Antonia, which was the headquarters of Rome in Jerusalem at that time. And here's Peter standing out there saying, what you just did was lawless. So this is an incredible, we're witnessing the Spirit empowering and emboldening Peter. And one of the reasons that so many people love Peter is that he, Peter is the poster child, right? Peter is the perfect picture of a life lived and a ministry done first without and then with the presence and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Because we've just done it, right? At times, watching poor Peter in the Gospels is almost painful, right? He's talking when he should have been listening. He's rushing ahead when he should have been holding back. And then he's holding back when he should have been stepping forward in faith. But after the Spirit came into him, after the, the power was resting upon him, now working through him, we see that Peter is an absolutely different man. And we need to be encouraged because the Spirit can, the Spirit wants to, and the Spirit will do the very same thing in each and every one of us. And when he does it, it will very likely blow our minds. Because I firmly believe that Peter himself may have been amazed at how bold he was being. I suspect that even as Peter was saying this, he may have half expected that the next thing he was going to hear was crucify him. And yet Peter next presses even further. Right? He's explained what happened using that prophecy. He's pointed their attention to the life and ministry and the resurrection of Jesus. Now he's going to quote from yet another scripture, Psalm 16, to show them that the testimony in the scriptures about Jesus, written by one of their own most beloved kings. In verse 25 he says, For David says concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will see rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence." So through the ministry of the Spirit, 
Peter recognized that though this psalm was written by David and though it seemed to speak of David, it actually spoke of someone much greater than David. It spoke of the Messiah. It spoke of Jesus. It spoke of the Christ. And remember back in Luke 24, during that 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, remember it said that Jesus was with the disciples and he explained to them that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And then it says that he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And here, the Spirit is helping Peter to remember and apply these things just like he'll do for us. When we're in a situation where we're witnessing, where we're ministering, we'll find ourselves remembering stuff we forgot that we ever knew. And that's the Spirit bringing those things to remembrance and using them in his witness. We primarily think of David as a king, but David was also a prophet because he wrote the inspired word of God as he was directed by the Spirit of God. And here in Psalm 16, you could almost kind of put some quotation marks around these verses because although it's David speaking prophetically, it's actually the Lord Jesus speaking personally. Right, this couldn't possibly have been about David. Watch Peter explain that to them next. Look in verse 29. He says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne... He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he poured out this which you now see here. So Peter points out that this psalm can't be speaking of its human author David because he's dead. He remains buried. His body did see corruption as it turned to dust. So he couldn't have possibly been speaking about himself, but the psalm must speak prophetically about the one who would succeed him, right? The one that would come from his family line, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who Peter says here is now resurrected from the dead, was seen by many, ascended into heaven, and who is now enthroned there at the right hand of God, and who just had sent his spirit into the world upon his church, as you have all just witnessed. And Peter goes on, because just like he wasn't speaking of himself here in Psalm 16, Peter now turns and quotes from yet another psalm of David, Psalm 110, where David again is not speaking of himself, but instead he's looking ahead by faith. Verse 34, Peter says that David did, um, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, David, as much as the Jews loved David, they knew that David did not miraculously ascend to heaven. They knew that David is not seated at God's right hand, and yet Jesus is. And what's interesting is that this verse from the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament more times than any other single verse. It's either quoted directly or it's referred to at least 25 different times. Because in this psalm, under the direction of the Spirit, David amazingly understood and he very powerfully proclaimed the deity of the Messiah. Right? By the inspiration of the Spirit, David's recording that Yahweh, right, Israel's covenant God, the Lord, he says, spoke to my Lord, David's Lord, Jesus, spoke to him as God. And so Peter's using this now to show that the Messiah, whom the Jews knew was the focus of this psalm, 
that the Messiah had to be God. And then in verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So here Peter's conclusion is a declaration and a stinging accusation. He says, Jesus is your Messiah. He is Lord. He is Christ. He is God. And you crucified him. And all of Israel needed to know it. It's as if Peter said, hey, you were wrong about Jesus. You crucified him as though he was a criminal. And yet the resurrection, God proved that he's Lord and he's Messiah. And imagine the way these words must have come crushing down upon these Jews because they had crucified God's anointed one. And Peter pointed out that the coming of the Spirit was the evidence that Jesus had now been exalted up in heaven. And you remember back in John chapter 7 in one of those earlier encounters that Jesus had with the religious leaders, standing right there in that same spot on the very temple mount, Jesus had proclaimed that if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And it says, but this he spoke concerning the spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, guess what? Now Jesus was glorified. Now the spirit had been given. And these Jews knew it. Now, how do we know that they knew it? Well, because we see next. Notice on the part of Peter, there was no pleading. There was no begging. There was no urging anyone to make a decision. There wasn't even soft music playing as Peter gave some sort of a gospel invitation. But notice that the moment Peter comes to a conclusion, it says in verse 37 that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? The convicting power of the Holy Spirit was so mighty that there was this immediate response. So here the crowd had heard these amazing things as the tongues were uttered. They'd seen Peter stand up boldly and preach powerfully and so persuasively they'd heard him use the scriptures and apply them accurately and irrefutably and as a result it says that they were cut to their hearts they were wounded deeply they were affected profoundly and what a great way to describe that work that the holy spirit does as he convicts us as he speaks directly to our hearts they now knew that they were responsible for the death of Jesus as each and every one of us in this room are. And they knew they had to do something as a response to that responsibility. And notice that they asked Peter what they could possibly do. And the truth is that when the Spirit of God is working deeply in someone's heart, they will want to come to him. They will act to come to God. And that's the difference between the condemnation that we sometimes experience from the enemy. That's what drives us away from the Lord in shame. That's when the enemy says to us, you know, you've sinned one too many times. That's it. There's no more hope for you. But the difference then is the conviction of the spirit It's that sense that drives us toward the Lord as we seek after forgiveness and we seek after restoration because we know of his great grace and his mercy. It's been said that in in normal Christian uh, seasons of Christian work that it's the evangelist who seeks after the sinner. And yet in times of revival or in times of awakening, when the spirit is moving powerfully over a group of people, things change and you suddenly start to see the sinner seeking out the evangelist because people are hungry and people are searching and people's hearts are prepared. And on this day of Pentecost here in Act 2, this was one of those great seasons of God's work. And I think that the response of the crowd here also gives us some much-needed perspective about all of the different things that we've seen happen on this day. Because notice, remember that the gift of tongues 
actually produced nothing in the listeners except a sense of astonishment and some mocking. But it wasn't until the gospel was preached that we start to see the conviction came from the Spirit, and that was the work that the, the Lord really wanted to accomplish it, and he accomplished it through his word. As the Spirit worked with the word to bring that conviction, and they were cut to their hearts, it says. Just as a quick aside, we think of the last time we talked about cutting with respect to Peter, right? Remember in John 8, it records that when Jesus was arrested there in the garden, Peter was like swinging wildly with some sword that he got somewhere, and he cut the right ear off, remember, of one of the soldiers who had come to arrest Jesus. And we remember that the whole thing just became this kind of an embarrassing mess that Jesus had to come after Peter and clean up and put the poor guy's ear back on. And we all know that this is a perfect picture of poor Peter in the flesh doing the best that he could with a literal sword of human power and just making a colossal mess of everything. But now here, after the resurrected Jesus had changed Peter's life and as the power of the Holy Spirit had come upon him, now he did some much more effective cutting. It was the cutting of hearts which had opened up those hearts to Jesus. And it's such a great picture of what Peter and of what we can do in the power of the Spirit. In the power of the Spirit, we can do our best with the sword of the Spirit that Paul says is the Word of God. So if you ever doubt the effective power of the simple proclamation of the Word of God, don't. And next time you do doubt, just remember Peter and his two tries at using the sword, right? So here these men in this multitude, they realize, they recognize their overwhelming sense of guilt and sin and they plead, what can we do? And then Peter in verse 38 said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Peter says, there is still hope for you. He says, the promise of the Spirit is still available to you, and the Lord is calling out to you and to your future generations. Imagine that these are the very people who had said back in Matthew 27, they had cried out, his blood be on us, and our children, and now these very same people are assured of grace for themselves and grace upon their children if they will simply turn to the Lord. But Peter points out that there were two specific things that they had to do. Now, this is important. They had asked, what shall we do? So now here Peter gives them something to do. And right off the bat, it illustrates the fact for us that we each must do something to be saved. We need to do something to follow Jesus. It doesn't just happen. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Our salvation is not based on works, but it is based, in a sense, on what we do or what we don't do. And the first thing Peter told them to do was what? Repent. Now, when John the Baptist preached in Matthew chapter 3, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus began to preach in Matthew chapter 4, he said what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now when Peter starts to preach, he begins with repent. Now these days, repent sounds like one of those old-fashioned kind of harsh words, right? Both to unbelievers and even to some believers alike, but it is actually still an essential part of the gospel. To repent doesn't just mean to be sorry. It also doesn't mean to completely clean up your act, but more so repent simply means to change one's mind or to change one's direction. 
These men had been thinking a certain way about Jesus before, a way that considered him worthy of crucifixion. Now they needed to turn their thinking around completely and embrace Jesus as their Messiah. We should never think of, we should never communicate repentance as something that we have to do before we can come back to God. Repentance really just describes what coming to God is. Because you can't turn towards God without turning from the things that he was against, without somehow changing the course that you are on. And what we need to hear is this. In this sense... Repent is actually a word of incredibly great hope. Because what the word repent says, it says you don't have to continue in this direction that you're going. You can turn things around and turn to God. And what great hope there is in that. The gospel of Jesus isn't based on people cleaning up their lives or getting their acts completely together. The gospel is simply based on a change of mind concerning Jesus Christ. For some of us, Jesus wasn't much more than a swear word, right? For others, maybe he was a political revolutionary. Maybe he was a a great teacher. Maybe you just thought he was a wise man. But then at some point, each of us heard the word and we saw our need and we sensed the power and our hearts were cut and we had no other response but to repent. No other response but to change our thinking, admit that he is Christ, that he is God, that he alone is capable of forgiving our sins, and then we were saved. And when that occurs, we very naturally wanted to do the second thing that Peter told these people to do, which was to be baptized. Now, water baptism, as we've said, is simply an outward statement of an inward change. It's an expression of our belief, an expression of our trust in Jesus as we publicly identify our lives with his life. And for these Jews, it would have been especially important because in that day, Jews were not commonly baptized. Only Gentiles who wanted to be baptized into Judaism, Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. For, so for these devout men and women here to be baptized in the name of Jesus would simply show how strongly they knew that they needed Jesus. It was an evidence that they trusted in him and him alone for the forgiveness of their sins. And rather than bringing a lamb to be sacrificed ever again in the temple, their baptism would be a testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in a very real way for them, by being baptized in the name of Jesus, they would be identifying themselves publicly with him and setting themselves apart ultimately from the nation that had rejected and crucified him. And isn't that still what we want to do today in our baptism? Simply showing that we stand with Jesus. And if, if you're a believer and you've yet to be baptized, you need to be. And you can be. Right, Just a couple Sundays from now, right here as part of of our Sunday service, you can finally once and for all make that public declaration that you stand with Jesus. Now, quickly, we need to note, it is very unfortunate that the translation of verse 38 in many of the translations seems to suggest that people must be baptized for their sins to be forgiven, right? Because this is, but this is not at all what the Bible actually teaches. The Greek word which is translated for, in that phrase, for the remission of sins, can also mean on the account of, or because of, or on the basis of. It's used the very same way when we saw it back in Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist was baptizing people on the basis that they had already repented. And unfortunately, Acts 2.38 has become a kind of a key verse for people who want to try to teach that salvation 
is because of baptism. And yet in dozens of New Testament passages, salvation is said there to be by faith alone in the Lord Jesus. And certainly a single verse here could not conceivably contradict that kind of testimony. You remember that by Jesus himself, the thief on the cross was given the assurance of his salvation apart from baptism. Jesus himself, we notice in all of the gospel record, Jesus himself never baptized anyone, which would seem strange if baptism was so essential to salvation. We know the apostle Paul said to the Corinthians that he was thankful that he had only baptized a few of them. They were fighting over who baptized and who was better. And he says, I'm thankful I only baptized a few of you, which again would seem to be sort of a strange statement if baptism had this kind of a saving merit. The truth is that baptism is a beautiful experience. Baptism is a public proclamation. It's a wonderful picture of our faith in Jesus, but it doesn't save us. But it does separate us. Look what we read in the next verse. Verse 40 It says that with many other words, he testified and he exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So he exhorts the multitude. He says, get away from this religion. Turn to Christ. Get away from these people who crucified the Messiah. Separate yourself from those who continue to reject Jesus. Now, on verse 40, I want you to underline just the first half of that verse in your Bibles because it is extremely and theologically significant. Because if we were to read through the whole of Peter's perfectly crafted, spirit-filled sermon here in our text today from verses 14 all the way down to verse 40, if we were to read that entire thing, it would take us about four to five minutes. So sometimes people might ask, well, Pastor Bill, if it only took Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, four to five minutes, right, to preach this great sermon, then why does it take you 45 or 50 or more to get through one of yours? Well, notice with me that there were, what, many other words, it says, that Peter used, probably at least 45 or 50 minutes worth of words. In fact, one translation says, then Peter continued preaching for a long time. Okay? (laughs) So like almost all of the sermons that we see recorded in the Bible, what we have here in this text is kind of a Holy Spirit summary of a longer message. That's a longer message that we see that the Spirit used mightily. Because in our very last verse, it says in verse 41, that then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. So through this Spirit-filled preaching of Peter, right, as this gift of prophecy was powerfully manifest, this day of Pentecost saw this amazing harvest of souls. And the church went from about 120 people to 3,120 people in one day as the Spirit used the word, ministered by and through Peter to bring conviction to people's hearts and work a miracle 3,000 times over. But as remarkable as this is, as we close, I want you to consider with me for just a moment And let's think about the way that this touched lives far beyond even just this one day. Because remember that many of those 3,000 brand new believers were undoubtedly pilgrims who we said had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And they had come from those 15 different countries across three different continents. And no doubt they had come anticipating that God was going to do something great, but certainly they could never have imagined anything like what happened here in Jerusalem on that day. And then these Jews were about to go back home and travel from Jerusalem and return to those 15 different countries across three continents. And they went back taking that life 
life-changing good news of Jesus Christ with them, no doubt anxious to tell their families and to share this with their neighbors about this good news of Jesus and the hope and the possibility of real repentance and about that promise and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was speaking powerfully at Pentecost, The Spirit, I have no doubt, continued to speak powerfully through all of those people who went home. And the Spirit is still speaking just as powerfully today. He's speaking into individual lives and he's speaking through people. He's speaking in the scriptures. He's speaking to people's hearts. And he is speaking about all of these same things. Now this morning we're going to celebrate communion as a remembrance of the the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And as we do, let's invite the Spirit to speak to our hearts as we remember and as we look back, as we look ahead to what it is, to the Lord's return and the things he wants to do before that. Let's allow the Spirit to continue to speak to our hearts about what part he'd have us to play in that. Speak to our hearts about the, the, the grace and the mercy that we've been shown and how we can make that same grace and mercy available to others. Maybe speak to our hearts about he would, how he would use the gift of prophecy through some of us as we simply open up the word and begin to share with people and allow the spirit to do that work through each and every one of us in this room. Amen? pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word, and we thank you so much, Lord, for the way that your spirit inhabits your word, Lord, the way that he gives us understanding of it, Lord, the way that he speaks through it, and Father, we, um, Lord, we're so grateful just to be a part of proclaiming that word, Lord, to be used by you to reach out and to touch and to minister, and Father, we pray even now as we go to this time of communion. Father, we pray that it would be a time where we would reflect and we would look in, Lord, but also that it would be a time that we would be open, Lord, to those things that your Spirit would speak to us, Lord, and those things that your Spirit would have in store to do through us. And so, Father, we just pray that we would take this time, Lord, that we'd be solely focused on you. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're visiting with us today and you are a born-again believer, then communion is open and it's available to you. And if you're visiting with us today or if you've been with us for a while and you're not yet a born-again believer, we want to help you um, fix that this morning. So there are prayer counselors up here to my right and to my left. I'll be available. Uh, Grab one of the other pastors. Grab anybody and let us talk to you and to share with you about... um, how to start a new life in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's take communion together.